This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. So today is the fourth day of Ramadan. Of the year 1441 of the Hijrah and inshallah ta'ala we are going to begin with the fourth juz of the Qur'an bi'ithnillahi ta'ala but before we do that I think now that we're three days in it is uh, something which we can all recognize and acknowledge and that is the, uh, the effort that has been put into the translation of this amazing tafsir of the Qur'an by the translators and I know that sometimes I may pick on a word or something that may have been a mistranslation or a mistake and that is in no way to detract from the efforts of the translators may Allah Azza wa reward them with good but every person the translator, the author, myself every human is liable to make mistakes and it is from the amanatul ilmiya, from the way that we discuss our sacred tradition and knowledge that we correct those mistakes as and when we come across them as the scholars used to say, that no one is infallible in this religion except for the Prophet And in addition to that then, it is also important to acknowledge now that we're three, four days in, the immense effort of the authors, rahimahumullah ta'ala. And it was from the etiquettes of the students of knowledge of old, past and present, that when they're studying the works of their scholars and they're reading from their efforts and their books, that they send mercy upon them from Allah Azza wa Jal and ask Allah Azza wa Jal to send his forgiveness and mercy upon them and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the efforts that they make and that is why it is from the etiquettes of knowledge when you begin from reading one of these works that you begin by saying قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى May Allah's mercy be upon the author or in our case because we're going to begin with the recitation of the Qur'an we say قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِي تَفْسِيرِ قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى May Allah Azza wa Jal have mercy upon the author as he gives the tafsir concerning the saying of Allah Azza wa Jal. And that is from the benefits of studying in this way, going through classical texts, that we not only learn the knowledge that comes through learning from these books, but we also take from the etiquettes and the mannerisms and the ways and the methods by which that knowledge is taken. It is said that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala used to have 5,000 students in his lessons. Only 500 of them would be making notes and writing, meaning that they were his active students. The remaining 4,500 would simply come to watch and observe Imam Ahmad rahimahullah and to benefit from his etiquettes and to benefit from his character. Rahimahullah ta'ala. So that has always been the way that knowledge is spread. The mother of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala when he was a young boy and before he went to one of his first teachers Rabi'ah she said to him اذهب إلى Rabi'ah فخذ من أدبه قبل علمه Go to your teacher Rabi'ah and learn from his character before you take from his knowledge. And so the path of knowledge has always been through the character of knowledge and that is why the scholars have written books on this topic. Books that they made specifically on this topic of the etiquettes of seeking knowledge. And from the most Beneficial of them in our time, which has been translated into English, is the book Hilyatu Talib al Ilm by our Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. So we're going to begin with the tafsir, we're beginning with Surah Ali Imran, or continuing with Surah Ali Imran, verse number 93. 
But before we do that, inshallah, just to um, remind ourselves of the question that I asked yesterday. The question from yesterday was verse 38 of Surah Ali Imran in the story of Zakariya salatu wassalam, when he sees the blessings that Allah has given to Maryam salam. And then he turns and he asks Allah for a child. With full conviction and certainty that Allah will respond to his dua. But only two verses later in verse number 40 of Ali Imran, it seems that he has some doubt now that Allah has granted him his dua. And he says, He says, O Allah, O Lord, how can I possibly have a son? So how do we reconcile between these two? And this science, I'm going to ask these questions of how to reconcile between these verses. It is from the most beneficial sciences of studying tafsir, from the most beneficial aspects of studying tafsir is to understand how the Qur'an complements other parts of the Qur'an, how verses complement other verses and how we reconcile and combine between them when at times, sometimes they may seem like that there is something which doesn't make, uh, it doesn't flow as it should flow or we think that there may be what seems apparently to be a slight contradiction. And as we know, there is no contradiction in the Qur'an. So the scholars have told us how to reconcile between those verses. In the case of this verse, there are three ways that we can say, or three ways that we understand these two verses. The first of them is what is mentioned by Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. And it is a statement of Ikrimah, rahimahullah, the famous student of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah. And that is that he says that when Zakariya was given this glad tidings, when the angel came to him to give him glad tidings, he came in a form that he didn't recognize. And so Shaitan whispered to Zakariya that maybe perhaps this is a false bearer of news, that is not an angel from Allah, so test him. So he tested him and that is why he asks for a sign. In verse number 41, aya. That is the reason of him asking a sign. And that is the position of Ikrimah rahimahullah ta'ala. So when he's saying, how is it possible that I can have a son? Not because he doubts or because he doesn't think that Allah has the ability to do so, but because he's unsure of this person who is in front of him, giving him this news. So he asks for a sign from Allah Azza wa Jal to ensure that it is a truthful message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second response to this is that the question is one of clarification. قَالَ رَبِّ أَنَّا يَكُونُ لِي غُلَامِ Oh Lord, how can I possibly have a son? Meaning that despite being old and my wife being barren, does that mean that my child will come from my wife? Or is that a command from Allah that I should take a younger wife, a new wife? So it is a sign or it is a question of clarification. Istifham or istikhbar. So he is clarifying. It's not doubting Allah Azza wa Jal, but asking for further clarification. And the third response is that the question is one of amazement. It is amazement that Allah Azza wa Jal will respond in such a manner and in such a way as He pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. So He says how amazing it is that my Lord will give me a son even though I have reached old age and despite my wife being barren. So He is being amazed by Allah Azza wa Jal's power and His ability and His gift subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Now. Allah, the Father, the Son, the Lord, the Father, 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 the Father
Bible was revealed when the Jews said, the same that your fathers are eating of the blood, means that you did not eat some of your children, some of your told some of your children, some of your old people's local, the father of Israel, except for Israel, meaning Yaqub, made a local for himself because Allah was sent down. He prohibited camel meat for himself because of an illness he was suffering from. He vowed that he was healed, he would not eat it, and so he made it unlawful for himself. This was after Ibrahim, and so it had not been unlawful for Ibrahim his time as they came. Say, meaning to them, this is the law, read it out. Prove the truth of what they say if you speak the truth. They were dumbfounded and did not do so. Then Allah makes a statement in the following ayah. So Allah Azza wa in this verse, verse number 93 of Surah Ali Imran, speaks about the incident of Israel. And Allah Azza wa in this verse is speaking, and, and this narration that is mentioned uh, is a narration that is mentioned in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving to us a principle here, and that is that the people of the book said that they can claim that they followed the prophets of old, Ibrahim and Ishaq and Yaqub. And Allah Azza wa is saying in this verse that they claim, these people, that they followed the path of these prophets that came before them. Allah Azza wa says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made all of the food halal for Bani Israel, except for what Israel made haram for himself, prohibited upon himself. And Israel, according to the majority of the scholars of tafsir, is the name of the Prophet Ya'qub alayhi salatu wassalam. And there is some discussion amongst them whether that was an actual name of his, meaning a second name as well as Ya'qub, his other name was Israel, or whether it is a laqab, a nickname or a title that was given to him. The Prophet Ya'qub therefore in the Quran is known by two names, the name Ya'qub and the name Israel. It was allowed for the shari'a or in the, in the religions or in the uh, shari'as that came before our shari'a of the Prophet wasallam and the previous prophets for previous nations that as a way of worshipping Allah and seeking to come close to him they could take something which was halal, mubah and they could make it haram upon themselves with the intention of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so for example, you know, our equivalent if I was to give an example today is I like chocolate but I will give up chocolate and make it haram upon myself as an act of ibadah. This was something which was allowed for them in their sharia. But it is not allowed for us to do so. And we mentioned the verses before, and the other verses, eat from what Allah has provided for you. Halalan tayyibah, it is halal. And verses that will come later on in the Quran, why do you make haram what Allah has made halal and vice versa. In our sharia, it is not allowed. And that will be mentioned explicitly when we come to the 28th juz of the Qur'an in Surah Al-Tahreem. When Allah Azza wa will mention the story of how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sought to distance himself from eating or drinking honey. Ya yuhannabiyu lima tuhadlimu ma ahallallahu lak. O Prophet, why do you make haram that which Allah has made halal for you? And we'll speak about that story in more detail. But the Prophet Sallallahu didn't like or sought to stop taking honey because of some complaints that he received from some of his wives alayhi salatu wassalam. Allah Azza wa corrected him in this because in our sharia it is not allowed for someone to make haram what is made halal. Okay, then the question comes, what if I want to go on a diet and I want to give up chocolate instead? Is that allowed? Ismail? Ismail is not even paying attention. It is allowed. And the difference between the two is, I don't consider it to be haram. 
So when I say that I'm going to give up chocolate, that's a personal preference. Or I prefer not to take, you know, don't eat white bread, or I refuse to eat cakes, or whatever it may be, uh, you know, fried food. That's my personal preference. But I don't say that it's haram, neither upon myself, nor upon anyone else. Nor do I stop them from doing so. That is the difference between the two. In the Sharia as before, it was allowed to make it haram, meaning that after I've made that oath, if I do it, I am sinful and I have broken that oath. In our religion, it is not allowed to make it haram, but it is allowed for personal preference to not eat certain foods or whatever. And the Prophet clearly did so in the hadith of Khalid ibn Walid radiallahu anhu when they had the desert lizard, the dhab. And the Prophet they ate it before him and they offered it to him some. And he said, this isn't from the food of my people. So he allowed them to eat from it, showing that it's halal, but he refused to eat on the basis of personal preference. And that brings me on to, therefore, the question of today that I'm going to leave with you. And that is, as we mentioned, Israel is the name of the Prophet Ya'qub. And in the Qur'an, he is mentioned with these two names, Ya'qub and Israel, alayhi salam. The question is, why does Allah Azza wa use these two names for him? Why not just call him Ya'qub all the time, or Israel all the time? Why mention him sometimes with one name and sometimes with other? What is the reason for that? And the clue in that is in the linguistic meaning of those two words. No. So this, in verse number 96 of Ali Imran, <coughs> the cause of revelation that is given is a statement of Ibn Jurayj, rahimahullah ta'ala, <coughs> one of the scholars of the past. As an Imam Siyuti will mention in his wider tafsir or in his encyclopedia of tafsir called Ad-Dur al-Manthun. And Allah Azza wa Jal says therefore that the first hash that was established for the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal is the one in Bakka. Bakka is one of the names of Mecca. And the scholars have different reasons or different explanations as to the meaning of the word Bakka. One of them is the one that is mentioned by Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala that it breaks the necks of tyrants. Meaning that it's referring to when Abraha came with uh, his army of elephants trying to destroy the Kaaba, and Allah Azza wa Jal destroyed him instead. Others said that Al-Bakka means uh, crowds and it refers to the crowds that come and they converge upon the city of Mecca during the pilgrimage and others said that it comes from the word Buka 
which means to cry, because people come and they shed their tears and they cry in the city of Mecca. And it is, as the author Rahimahullah Ta'ala mentions, it is mentioned in the authentic hadith of Abu Dhar radiallahu when he asked the Prophet Sallallahu O Messenger of Allah, what was the first house that was built? He said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Al Masjid Al Haram. He said, then which or which one came after? He said, Al Masjid Al Aqsa. He said, and how many years between the two? He said, 40 years, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And this is the verse of the Quran that obligates Hajj upon us. The obligation of Hajj is found in this verse, Walillahi nas and it is the duty of people to Allah that they make Hajj to the house. The author Rahimahullah Ta'ala before that when he's speaking about the signs that we find in the Kaaba and in Masjid al-Haram, he says other signs are the multiplication of good deeds there and the fact that birds do not fly over it. Meaning that birds when they come they circle around the Kaaba but they don't fly directly over it. And I found this in a number of works of tafsir. And to be honest, it's not a hadith that I found but something which they mention. And I don't know, I've never paid attention to whether that's actually true or not. Uh, but Allahu A'lam. But it's something which I found in a number of works of tafsir and something which Asyuti Rahimullah Ta'ala mentions as well. So Allah Azza wa Jal in this verse obligates Hajj. This is where we take the obligation of Hajj from in the Quran. And Allah Azza wa Jal links it to ability. Man ilayhi sabila. And the ability that is mentioned or explained or clarified in the Sunnah is Azad wa Rahila. That you have the financial means to be able to do so, as well as the means of traveling that will take you there, and clearly the physical ability is part of that as well. يا ايها الذين امنوا ان تطيعوا فريقا من الذين 
Evangelium gelebt, für welche Prüfung sollst du meine Burg genau nicht bewerten, aber jedes so it's well known and it's established in the books of Sirah that the Aus and the Khazraj, which are the two tribes of Medina that will later make the Ansar, had civil strife and war between them for many generations. And they were constantly, despite being related to each other and living in the same area of Medina, the same city, they were constantly at war with one another. And one of the interesting aspects of the Sirah is how when the Prophet ﷺ is looking to emigrate and looking for somewhere to give him asylum and shelter for him and the Muslims and is approaching the different tribes during the Hajj season as they would come to Mecca and he would present Islam to them on the basis that they would give them asylum. The Prophet ﷺ approaches the major tribes but one of the tribes or some of the tribes that he does not approach is the tribes of Aus and Khazraj of Medina. It is Aus and Khazraj that come to the Prophet ﷺ in a dozen of them, they come and they are the ones who ask about Islam. Even though, as we know, the Prophet ﷺ has relatives, his maternal family, or some of it, comes from the city of Medina. That's why when he migrates, the Prophet ﷺ goes to Quba first because that's where his relatives used to live. And it shows, therefore, that Allah plans things in ways that we do not understand. And it shows an amazing methodology that the Prophet ﷺ had and that is that when a door would open, even if it seemed to be an unlikely door, he wouldn't close it. But when those dozen people came, and they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we'll give you asylum, he said to them that there's not enough of you to give us asylum. But you go back and call others in Medina to Islam, and then come back next year at the same time and see me. And the following year they came back, this time some 70 in number. And then the Prophet ﷺ sent to, with them Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu, and they went, and obviously we know what takes place after that, and it becomes the place where the Muslims migrate. And so this is a sign from Allah Azza wa Jal. And it is one of the favors that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will mention in the coming verses upon them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just takes them from the edge and the precipice of the fire because of the infighting that they had and the, that, uh, that disharmony that existed amongst them. And through Islam, Allah Azza wa Jal united their hearts. وكيف تكفرون وأنتم تتلى عليكم آيات الله وفيكم رسوله عكي تسبيل من الله سانز ورسالك تشيب عن المسجد في الأمري This is a question of one that I'm here ومن يعتصم بالله فقد هدي إلى صراط مستقيم Whoever holds fast to Allah invited to the straight path يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته don't you believe, you people of Allah, will give that is his due by obeying him. So do not disobey, but be careful. Do not show the gratitude, but remember and do not forget. وَلَا تَمُوتُنَّ إِلَّا وَأَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ And do not die except as Muslims. Be fearing Allah from us. And this verse, verse 102 of Surah Ali Imran, is one of the verses that the Prophet would recite at the beginning of his khutbah al-Hajjah. And he would say this as a reminder to people. And this verse is an amazing verse in its depth and in its power and in its instruction that we should be from those people who are fearful of Allah, are conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as He deserves and not as we think He deserves but as is deserving of Him subhanahu wa ta'ala by obeying Him as the author mentions, by not disobeying Him, by being thankful, by not being ungrateful, by remembering Him and not becoming heedless of Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And once you have that baseline of taqwa or it is something that you work towards and you put your efforts towards and that's something which you try every day, every day to attain and to maintain, 
then after that Allah Azza wa Jal has made it easy upon us that if we are unable to do something then we can take the concessions that Allah has provided for us as Allah mentions elsewhere in the Quran فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ Fear Allah as much as you can and the way that you combine between those two ayahs is that this verse is speaking about the basis of and the mindset of taqwa and how we try to attain it and once you've attained it then there is no harm in you taking those concessions from Allah Azza wa Jal and doing things to the best of your ability. But someone who doesn't try, and someone who doesn't bother, and someone who is heedless of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then they wish to take every single concession that they can find, and even those that aren't concessions, but they just want to take them anyway and make them into concessions, those are the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to in the Quran as being heedless. And this verse 103 is an instruction from Allah Azza wa Jal to unite. But unite upon what Allah Azza wa Jal says? Upon the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the Quran, which is the Sunnah, which is the religion of Islam. And that is what the companions did when they united the Aus and the Khazraj. For many generations they were unable to unite despite having relations amongst them and business dealings and many other things that united and bonded them. Yet they were split and they were disunited and there was enmity and hatred between them. Allah reminds them of his favor upon them that they unite, that he united their hearts but that unity comes as a result of the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why the bonds of Islam are stronger than the bonds of blood and marriage and any other type of relationship that a person can have. And Allah Azza wa Jal will tell us in the Quran in other verses that on the day of judgment, the best of those people are those who come with those relationships that are based upon taqwa. The closest of friends on that day, meaning the day of judgment, will be enemies one to another, except for those who come with their relationships based upon taqwa. So when Allah Azza wa Jalla says, وَلْتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ Let there be from amongst you a community. Meaning not everyone has to do the ordering of the good and forbidding of the evil because it is a fard kifaya. If in one setting, at one place, someone does it, then the rest are absolved from that responsibility and that duty. And at the same time, not everyone is qualified 
to order the good and forbid the evil in every case and every situation and every circumstance and in every context. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us these principles that we find within this verse. And al-amru bil-ma'roof, al-nahi al-munkar, commanding the good, forbidding the evil, enjoining the good, preventing harm, it is from the cornerstones of our religion. And it is from the greatest deeds that a person can perform. And it is from those things that Allah Azza wa favored this ummah with. With its conditions, with its etiquette, with wisdom, as we mentioned yesterday, putting things in their correct place and in their correct way, it is something which is extremely rewarding. And so, when you see something in front of you that is wrong, or needs correcting, or someone needs reminding, or some good needs to be enjoined, then so long as you fulfill those conditions and maintain those etiquettes, it is from the most rewarding of deeds. And the Prophet told us, وسلم, whosoever calls to some good will have the reward of the one who does that good, and his own reward will not be diminished in any way. So day on the day of judgment, Allah Azza wa Jal will illuminate people and give them light. And so they will look white and he will darken others. And so that shows that Allah Azza wa Jal will give light to people. In the hadith, the Prophet was asked, O Messenger of Allah, how will you recognize your ummah on the day of judgment? And the Prophet said, They will be illuminated, lightened. Because of the effects of the wudu that they used to make, meaning when they would wash their arms and they would wash their feet, that is something which will shine on that day and Allah Azza wa will give them that light. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this doesn't refer to a person's skin color, because a person can have the fairest of skin color in this world, but still be blackened and darkened on the day of judgment. And someone can have the darkest of skin color in this world, but be from the most whitened and illuminated faces on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Enjoy what you enjoy, what is recognized as right, and forbid what is known to be wrong, and believe in Allah. 
ولو آمن أهل الكتاب لكان خيرا لهم فكيف ببطريق أسعد الله السلام سعيد إن بليك بنفسه منهم المؤمنون وأكثرهم الفاسقون سمدنا أبليس فبصم الجماعة أبليس لن يضروكم إلا أذى زين بيتم أمي من مسلم يسب وقت كاسس وقت وإن يقاتلوكم يوليكم الأدباء ثم لا ينصرون they fight you they will turn their backs on you and fly when they will not come out against you but you will have victory over them ضربت عليهم الذلة أينما ثقفوا they will be plunged into the basement wherever they are found and nowhere will they have any help or stability إلا بحبل من الله وحبل Unless they had a treaty with Allah and with the people, meaning the believers. That means a treaty with the believers for security in exchange for paying the jizya. That is their only protection. They have brought down and returned with anger from Allah upon themselves, and they have been plunged into destitution. when he speaks about the people of the book who are good examples of those who have believed and accepted Islam and followed the Prophet ﷺ, he often gives the example of Abdullah ibn Salam and that is not to make it exclusive but it is by way of example there are many others as well but Abdullah ibn Salam is from amongst the foremost of them in terms of uh, who he was and his position and so on and so forth and this verse is mentioned in the Mu'ajam of At-Tabarani, the narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. That is said that when Abdullah ibn Salam radiallahu accepted Islam, the Jewish community of Medina before his Islam used to consider him to be amongst their most learned, most well-versed, most noble and pious people amongst their community. And when he accepted Islam, they said that no one accepts this religion except the worst of us. And he is the worst of us and they started to demean him and to look down upon him and to belittle him. And so Allah revealed these verses. There are amongst them those who are amazing. They believe in Allah and the last day and so on and so forth. <laughs> He will not be denied. 
by community. In both cases, it means that far from not receiving your reward, your second will be rewarded for it. And that is because when Allah speaks about, or generally when we speak about charity, one of the examples that is often given of charity is rain, the parable of charity, and one is also a wind. Like in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas concerning this month of Ramadan, the Prophet is described Abdullah ibn Abbas as being more generous than the free wind or the giving wind. And so that parable is something which the Arabs understood. But Allah in this verse, 1117, is giving the example of the disbelievers. And Allah changes the nature of that wind. It is not the gentle breeze, the free-going wind that benefits that Abdullah ibn Abbas described the Prophet as being. This is an icy wind or it is a harsh wind, a wind that actually causes damage and causes destruction in its wake. يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تتخذوا بطانة من دونكم لا يألونكم قبالا These believers do not take any outside themselves as intimates, meaning close friends or acquainted with your secrets. They, meaning other belonging to Jews, Christians, and hypocrites, will do anything to damage you. They will not confine themselves to corrupting you. وَدُّوا مَا عَنِتُّمْ They love and hope for what causes you distress and is very harmful to you. قَدْ بَدَتُ الْبَغْضَاءُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ وَمَا تُخْفِي صُدُورُهُمْ أَكْبَرُ Hatred and enmity towards you has appeared out of their mouths when they attack you and acquaint idolaters with your secrets. But what, meaning the enmity, their breast hide is far less. قَدْ بَيَّنَّا لَكُمُ الْآيَاتِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ We have made the signs of the enmity clear to you if you use your intellect. So do not befriend them. Their you, meaning believers, are lovelier because they are kin and friends, and they do not love you because they differ from you in their deen, even though you believe in all the books, because they do not believe in your books. Anger at what they see of your confusion. Biting fingers as far as it illustrates the strength of their anger. 
say, die in your rage. This means remain in it until your death. What you want to see will never happen. In this verse, verse 119, the author, Rahimullah Ta'ala, he says, when Allah Azzawajal concerning the part of the verse, they bite their fingers out of rage against you, he says that this is metaphorical. And this is a discussion that the scholars of Islam have had for generations as to whether in the Quran there is metaphor. Or whether everything that Allah Azzawajal says is in reality as it is being said. Meaning that it is not metaphorical, it is literal. And the so therefore, based upon what the author Ta'ala, is saying, is that it is a metaphor, them biting in the fingers. And those scholars who deny that there are metaphors in the Quran would say, no, they literally bite off their fingers. Meaning that they are out of rage, they're holding their fingers in their mouth to stop that rage from coming out. <coughs> And you have scholars who said that there are metaphors in the Quran and scholars who said that there are not. And that is, isn't the, you know, this isn't the time or place for that discussion. But the reason I mention this is because Ibn Abdul Bar, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar, says by ijma' of the scholars, by ijma', by consensus and by agreement, there is no metaphor in the Quran when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal. Because the position of having metaphors in the Quran then opens that door very wide for those people who misinterpret the names of Allah and its attributes as we've given numerous of examples so far during this tafsir of saying that Allah above his throne means his power or Allah's hand means his favor and so on and so forth. And that position is incorrect by ijma' of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah as Ibn Abdul Bar rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned. Once we remove that chapter out of the way, the names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal, then in the remainder of the Qur'an, is there metaphor or not? The position of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala is that it is possible to have metaphor in everything else in the Qur'an if there is an evidence to show that the meaning or what is being referred to is metaphorical. So if we have something within the verse or from the sunnah or what the Arabs understand from their language that there is some metaphor, it is possible in the remainder of the Qur'an but not in the names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal. And Allah knows best. Arranged the ranks, the Prophet of Arches under the command of Abdullah ibn Zubayr 
on the top of the mountain. He said, we come to the steps with arrows and do not let any come at us from behind. Do not leave your position whether we are winning or losing. This is the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir. That this verse and from this verse onwards now, 121 onwards, to more or less the end of the surah, refers to the battle of Uhud. And this is the place in the Qur'an that Allah Azza wa speaks about the battle of Uhud. And there's a couple of important points to mention here. Number one is the method of Allah Azza wa in mentioning stories in the Qur'an and mentioning incidents that took place in the lifetime of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that methodology, which I think we alluded to before, is that he mentions the lessons and the most important points. And Allah Azza wa does not mention the details of the complete battle from beginning to end. And so, or as you can see, Allah Azza wa is beginning here with the Prophet on the battlefield setting the companions in their positions upon the battlefield. But there is background to this. When the Quraysh are coming out and they're coming towards Medina, and the Prophet hears and he asks the companions, he gathers them, should we fight them? Should we leave Medina to fight them? Or should we stay inside the city and defend it from within? And some of the companions say, we want to go out and fight and we'll beat them like we beat them on the day of Badr. So the Prophet goes into his house and he puts on his body armor. And when he comes out, they say, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we didn't want to force your hand. We accept whatever you want to say. The Prophet ﷺ said it is not befitting for a Prophet of Allah once he has donned his body armor, that he should take it off until Allah decides between him and his enemies. That history, that background is found in the books of Hadith, it is found in the books of Sirah, and not in the Quran always. Allah Azzawajal focuses on what is important. And as we said, one of the objectives of this surah, and Allah knows best, is to establish the principle of obedience to the Prophet ﷺ. Because in order to, fulfill, submit to, to fully submit to Allah ﷺ, we must obey the Prophet ﷺ in what he gave to us. And so when we say we submit to Allah, but then we're, we're reticent in obeying the Prophet ﷺ, or we're unsure, or we're in two minds, that is not complete submission to Allah ﷺ, because Allah commands us in the Qur'an, to have that level of obedience to the Prophet ﷺ. And this is an example of that. And what happens then on a very real level, when people disobey the commands of the Prophet ﷺ for the companions in real life, but for us in terms of receiving guidance and following that path that takes us to the path of salvation, the Sirat al-Mustaqim. So Allah then mentions here, and this is the most extensive mention in the Qur'an of the Battle of Uhud. The Battle of Uhud is mentioned in more detail in Surah Ali Imran than anywhere else in the Qur'an. And as I said, more or less the rest of the Surah until the last couple of pages will deal with the Battle of Uhud. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this part of the story, which is the Prophet sallallahu coming and him telling the companions or a group of them, some 70 in number who are the archers, to go on a mount which is today known as Jabal al-Rumah, the Mount of the Archers which is the famous mountain when people go for Uhud, when they go for their you know, ziyarah trips and, the, and, the, and Hajj and Umrah. This is the mountain that people climb on and this is the mountain that people converge around. That is called the Mount of the Archers. And it is not Uhud. Uhud is the range of the mountains that you see behind that small mount. Uhud is a range of mountains. Anyway, the Prophet ﷺ, when he established those companions there under the leadership of Abdullah ibn Jubayr, radiyallahu anhu, he gave them explicit instructions. Do not leave this post, no matter what you see happening on the battlefield. Whether we're winning, we're losing, we're dying, whatever happens, you do not leave your post until you hear explicitly from me. And that is where the misunderstanding or the confusion takes place as we will come to see 
as we read these verses of the Quran and as you know from the story of the battle of Uhud. mentions here in this verse something else which takes place in the battle and that is that as we know when the Prophet left with Medina left from the city of Medina to go towards Uhud and this is before the army of Quraysh arrives the Prophet had a, a big army and amongst them were the hypocrites who also came out because they obviously apparently are showing that they're Muslims and they don't want to expose themselves and they come under the leadership of their leader Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul but as they're leaving or as they're on their way to, um, to Uhud, they make the excuse that we're fearful that the Quraysh will come and they will take our children and kill our families and take our wealth. So we're going to go back, we'll protect Medina from within, we'll be your vanguard or your rear guard if you like and we'll protect Medina. Even though the only way to get to Medina because of the way the Prophet ﷺ laid out his troops, the only way to get to the city of Medina would be through the Muslim army. There was no other path to the city of Medina but obviously this is a sign of the hypocrisy. And Allah is saying that two of your clans nearly follow them in this. Banu Salima and Banu Al-Haritha. Banu Haritha and Banu Salima. Not Salama. Banu Salima. And Abu Jabir, or Jabir radiallahu anhu, who is from the tribe of Banu Salima, Jabir al-Salami, and the name al-Salami is the tribe, or is the attribute, attribution to the tribe or the clan of Banu Salima. Jabir radiallahu anhu says, as it mentioned the hadith in al-Bukhari, he said this verse was revealed about us, meaning our clans, Banu Salima, Banu Haritha. Because on that day when Abdullah ibn Ubay said what he said, that he's fearful for the lives of our wives and children and so on in Medina, we nearly followed him in his footsteps and retreated with him. And that obviously would have been a major issue for them. But Allah Azza wa kept them firm as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah is the protector of those who have iman, which shows you that even in this most difficult of times where things are very uncertain and there's confusion and you don't know, one of the greatest means and ways of keeping steadfast and coming out of that difficult situation and that confusion in a manner that is pleasing to Allah Azza wa is to have Tawakkul in Allah and Iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Azza wa opens a way and gives light to the believers and Allah protects them with His divine care and protection. Following I will reveal to the defeated to remind them of Allah's blessing, blessing upon them. وَلَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ بِبَدْرِمُ وَأَنْتُمْ أَذِلَّهُ Allah helps their bed. A place between Mecca and Medina when you will be to have few at least small numbers. فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُمُونَ so Allah Azza wa Jalla goes back to the battle of Badr which takes place the previous year and this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving us lessons that there will be times when you will win and there will be times that when you will lose when Abu Sufyan 
and, and I keep referring to this hadith because it is an amazing hadith in Sahih Bukhari when Abu Sufyan, before he becomes a Muslim, an, goes to the Byzantine emperor Hiraqal and he asks him, Is there war? Hiraqal asks him, the Caesar asks Abu Sufyan, Is there war between you and him, meaning the Prophet? He says, Yes. He says, And what happens? He says, Sijal, sometimes we win and sometimes he wins. Hiraqal, when he comes to comment on the answers given by Abu Sufyan, he says, and that is always the way, the way and the, the path of the prophets. In their battles, sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. And Allah Azza wa gives many benefits and lessons in times of calamity and in times of loss and defeat that people will not be able to take if they always had victory and they always had that type of, uh, that type of winning. Uh, they constantly won everything that they had to face. So Allah here mentions that yes, you would not win on the day of Uhud and you would suffer casualties and much harm. But remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helped you on the day of Badr even though you were fewer and weaker on that day. That is from the Isra'iliyat or from the narrations that we don't have that are authentically reported and Allah Azza wa knows best. But this is a verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions here that on the day of Badr Allah Azza wa helped the Prophet and the Muslims with first a thousand angels, then three thousand, then five thousand. Allah says in Surah Al-Anfal, which is the surah that will discuss the battle of Badr in more detail, إِذْ تَسْتَغِيثُونَ رَبَّكُمْ فَاسْتَجَابَ لَكُمْ أَنِّي مُمِدُّكُمْ بِأَلْفٍ مِّنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ مُرْدِفِينَ Allah says that he helped them with a thousand in that surah, and now in this surah three and five, showing that Allah Azza wa Jal reinforced them and reinforced them. And it was the position that those companions who attended the battle of Badr, were from amongst the most senior and virtuous of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and the most honored amongst them. And Umar radiallahu an would bring his shura, his his counsel that he would, or his yeah, his counsel that he would he would consult. He would have them consisting of the people of Badr because they were the senior amongst the companions. And in the hadith of Hatib radiallahu an in the conquest of Mecca, when he writes to the people of Mecca, giving them advance notice of what the Prophet was intending to do in the conquest of Mecca and the Prophet finds out and he retrieves that letter that he had sent he said to Hatib, why did you do that? 
And Hatib says, because no one is there to protect my wealth, O Messenger of Allah. I didn't do it out of disbelief, but in order to protect the few assets that I have, and I knew that you would win this battle anyway, and my letter would make no difference. Umar radiallahu anhu said, O Messenger of Allah, shall I strike off his neck? The Prophet said, no, he's from the people of Badr. And what makes you know that perhaps Allah looked upon those people of Badr, and he said, do as you please, for I have forgiven you. Because of how few they were and how difficult those circumstances were in that first battle of Islam. And in the other hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that Jibreel asked me, what do you consider the people of Badr to be amongst you? He said that I consider them to be from amongst the best of us. The angel Jibreel ﷺ replied, and likewise we amongst the angels consider those who attended Badr to be from amongst the best of us. Why did Allah Azza wa Jal give defeat? So that people will constantly know that victory comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. It is not by numbers, it is not by by weaponry, it is not by anything else. Those are all means and those are all precautions that people have to take sensibly, but ultimately it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that grants defeat and grants victory. And that will be mentioned when we come in Surah At-Tawbah to the Battle of Hunayn in more detail. And there's a couple of hadith that are mentioned concerning this verse of the Quran. One of them is, as the author mentions, and it is that is a narration in the Tirmidhi, and there is a wording similar to it in Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet said after the battle, meaning after the battle, after the 70 odd companions were martyred and some of their bodies were mutilated, and the Prophet, as we know, by the end of the battle has blood pouring from his face and one of his tooth or one of his teeth is chipped. And the Prophet ﷺ was injured. He said, how can Allah forgive a people who treat their Prophet in this way? They harm him, they injure him, they let blood flow from his body. How can Allah, how, how would Allah possibly forgive such a people? So Allah says to him, وسلم, that is not for you to decide. Allah punishes whomsoever he wills and Allah guides and forgives whomsoever he wills. And we know then that Allah would guide from amongst those people who fought in the ranks of the disbelievers and Quraysh on that day, a good number of them like Abu Sufyan and like Khalid ibn al-Walid and like Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl and others, they would become companions radiyallahu anhum and like Wahshi the assassin of Hamza radiyallahu anhuma, they would all become Muslims and they would become from amongst those companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that we honor and that we revere. It is not up to you. And also from the hadith that is mentioned concerning this verse is what is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari. 
that the Prophet ﷺ would make dua against certain people by name or against certain tribes by name. And so Allah revealed this verse. It is not up to you who believes or who doesn't believe. And so some of those people would accept Islam and as we know most of those tribes, if not all of them, would eventually come into the fold of Islam. Some of the scholars say that Allah in the midst of these verses that speak about the battle of Uhud is now speaking about riba, which is to multiply wealth that doesn't belong to you. And some of the scholars point to the hadith of the Prophet the same incident that we mentioned. When they came and they found the, the bodies of some of the companions who were mutilated, like Hamza radiallahu anhu, and is mentioned in a hadith. The Prophet ﷺ, or the companion said that 64 of the Ansar were killed on that day and 6 from the Muhajireen from amongst them Hamza and many of them their bodies were mutilated. So they said, meaning the Ansar or the companions, that if ever we are given a day upon which we have victory over them and Narbiyan comes from the same word of riba. We will do to them worse than what they did to us, meaning that we'll show them double what they showed us. And Allah Azza wa Jal, it is said, uh, it's not the cause of revelation for this verse, but the scholars, some of them said that this is why Allah Azza wa Jal mentions this in the midst of these verses. If you're not allowed to take more money that, is, that belongs to you, that is your right to take in financial transactions because it constitutes the riba, then surely in blood and in life, it is even more so the case that you cannot do more harm than was done to you. And Allah knows best. And this is one of those amazing verses of the Quran which Allah Azza wa tells us to race with one another, to compete with one another for the forgiveness of our Lord and for Jannah, which is the goal that we should have. Our goal in life shouldn't be to compete with one another over wealth or over jobs or over whatever else it may be. The Muslim is the one who competes with others for goodness and for turning to Allah Azza wa and attaining his forgiveness. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will mention a similar verse in Surah Al-Hadid, Sabiqu, which means, Sari'u means hasten, Sabiqu means compete with one another. Yeah. <laughs> 
will be erased if you're not acting on it when you might do so and pardon other people for the wrongs they have committed upon them. Wallahu yuhibbul muslimin. Allah loves forgivers. By those actions and those of them. So Allah Azza wa Jalla gives a description of who are these muttaqeen, who are these God-fearing people, and who are those people who race with one another and compete with one another for Allah's forgiveness and His mercy and His reward. From their descriptions is that they spend in times of ease and in times of hardship. And to give in times of hardship can sometimes be greater than to give in times of ease. And so one of the things that it is a principle in our religion, in times, for example, like wherein when there's pandemics or when there is a great, uh, a great harm that afflicts all of society, one of the ways in which to lift off that difficulty or that hardship or that calamity is by giving charity, as is mentioned in a number of hadith. And they control their rage. والكاظمين الغير In the hadith of Al-Bukhari, the hadith of Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu, the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the strong one is not the one who can out-wrestle another person. The strong one is the one who can suppress their anger even though they have the ability to exact that anger and to take out that anger. So these verses, beginning with the verse that speaks about riba and usury until this verse here, which is 136 of Surah Al-Imran, these are verses that aren't particularly to do with the Battle of Uhud, but Allah Azza wa mentions them, because it is one of the greatest ways of attaining Allah's favor in any, in any circumstance, to turn back to Allah, to seek forgiveness, to make tawbah, and clearly... Uh, in the Battle of Uhud, there were mistakes that were made on parts of some of the companions. In any part of our life, when we make a mistake or do some wrong, it is the nature or it is the practice of the Muslim that they turn back to Allah Azza wa Jal and they make tawbah to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. This was Do they not travel upon the earth and see the ending of those who came before them? So Allah Azza wa is saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't necessarily need to defeat a people in war in order to punish them. 
Because many of the nations that came before, Nuh Salam's people, and Hud, and Salih, and Lut, and Shu'ib, were destroyed and were punished because their prophets uh, gave war to them or, or fought them in battles and beat them on the battlefield. They were punished by Allah's punishment in other ways. And therefore Allah Azza wa is saying that it is not the only way, even if they win a victory, it is not a sign of Allah's pleasure, not a sign of Allah's happiness for them, not a sign that Allah loves them or in some way favors them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes gives them victory and through that victory they increase in their evil and they increase in their disbelief and they increase in their oppression so that when Allah chooses them to destroy them, Allah will destroy them in the harshest of ways. This verse, verse 139, Allah Azza wa is saying, you will always have victory, you will always be uppermost. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the dunya, because a person may die in the dunya, or they may have some other harm. But for the believers, they understand that their ultimate goodness, and what is their ultimate reward, is a reward of the hereafter. And therefore Allah Azza wa says that you will always be uppermost, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always give you the best of rewards. says in verse 14 so that Allah may know meaning so that Allah may make it known because Allah knows in his infinite knowledge and wisdom what these people will do and so on so when a Suyuti says with outward knowledge basically so that Allah may make it known to others because we do not know about ourselves our reality at times and others around us not know our reality and Allah Azza when he tests people he makes those realities apparent to ourselves and to those around us. So Allah may make it known those who believe and those who do not. As Allah mentions in the verse that we took, I think yesterday, do you imagine that you will enter into the garden without any difficulty coming upon you? And indeed those who came before you were afflicted by difficulty and hardship so that Allah would know or make known 
And so Allah Azza wa says this in a number of places in the Quran. Allah Azza wa sends these tests to see how we will behave because that is part of establishing the proof upon us either for us or against us. Meaning, referring to those companions as we mentioned, who when they heard the Quraysh were coming out for the Battle of Uhud, they said, let us go and fight and we will have a victory like we had on the day of, of Badr. The next one, this was revealed about the Muslims' defeat, is for verse 144. It is the commentary of the next verse. This ayah was revealed about the Muslims' defeat when word spread that the Prophet has been killed. The hypocrite said that he has been killed to revert to all believers. And this is when there were rumors at the end of the Battle of Uhud that the Prophet ﷺ had been killed because of the confusion and because of how difficult the battle came when the Quraysh routed the Muslim army and how many of the companions then were dispersed and some of them began to go into different directions and some of them even began to run towards, run towards, back towards Medina. One of the companions who was late to the battle was approaching Uhud as some of them were returning. And he said to them, where are you going? They said, the Prophet ﷺ has been killed. He said, then turn around and go and fight and die for what he died for, Those rumors that were there, which were later dispelled towards the very end of the battle, but in the midst of the battle that were there, the confusion, has the Prophet ﷺ been killed? What happens if he's killed? The hypocrites who heard this news as some of those people were coming out of Medina or as they were uh, looking from afar, they said to them, now is your time to turn back. He's not a prophet then. And Allah Azza wa Jalla says, is that your religion? That you leave Islam if the Prophet were to die? That's not our religion. Our religion is that we believe in Allah Azza wa Jalla and the Prophet despite his position and status, is only a human that Allah Azza wa Jalla would at some point give to him death. And this is the famous verse that was then used by Abu Bakr when the Prophet would eventually pass away. And the companions were in that state of confusion and not knowing what to do next. And he said his famous statement, مَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ مُحَمَّدًا فَإِنَّ مُحَمَّدًا قَدْ مَاتْ وَمَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ حَيُّ لَا يَمُوتْ Whosoever worshipped Muhammad, then Muhammad has passed away, alayhi salatu wassalam. And whosoever worships Allah, then Allah is ever living and will never die. And then he recited this verse. <laughs> No self can die except with Allah's permission after predetermined time is decreased. Everyone has a lifespan that cannot be decreased or lengthened. Defeat does not avert death, and standing firm does not end life. 
one of this world has a world that nothing of the next. If anyone desires the reward of the next world, he will take some of it as reward. And he will recompense the thankful. How many prophets has fought where this Qatala has fought and Qutila has been killed? Qatala means that he is the one fighting. Qutila means that he is the one being fought. The word Qutila can mean to be killed and means to be fought. So he can sometimes initiate the fighting and sometimes they are fighting him. So Qutila doesn't mean that he's been killed, it means that he is being fought. So he is fighting and he is being fought. Qatala and Qutila. Just like in Uhud, had they listened to the hypocrites and turned away from Allah Azza and turned on their heels, Allah says, then you would have been from the losers. This verse, verse 151, he says, when they resolve to return and eradicate the Muslims after Uhud. As mentioned by Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum, and what's referring to is the battle of Hamra al-Asad. Hamra al-Asad is the 
the small skirmish that took place uh, or the small battle if you like that took place after Uhud when the Quraysh left from the battlefield of Uhud and they proceeded back towards Mecca and at the end of the battle of Uhud the Abu Sufyan is calling out and saying that we've killed Muhammad and we've killed him and he's done and he's over and then Umar radiallahu anhu replies from the mountain where the Muslims were he complaintly replies and he says rather the Prophet is still alive and then he, Abu Sufyan is saying may Allah, uh, Hubal and, and his gods he's praising them and glorifying them and Umar radiallahu anhu replies and says and Allah is greater than them Allahu Akbar Allah is greater than all of your gods so they leave the Quraysh and as they're going back towards Mecca they realize that actually they didn't achieve what they set out for they didn't achieve anything Medina is still there, most of the companions are still alive, the Prophet is still alive. So even though the Muslims were in that difficult position, they didn't finish them off, they didn't achieve any of their goals. So they decided that they would regroup and return. And that is what Allah Azza wa is saying in verse number 151. We placed in their hearts a fear. Because the Prophet then asked the companions or a group of them to regroup and ready themselves to go and fight them again and that's what's amazing about Uhud that despite 70 of their number being dead and many of them being injured and the Prophet himself being injured the Prophet says despite their fatigue and their exertion let's go again because they're going to come back let's go and face them so Allah says that he placed fear in their hearts and that is from the khasa'is so from the special things that Allah Azza gave to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned in the hadith from the unique things that he was given is that his enemies fear was cast into their hearts before he even met them this is one of those examples it is said that people then said to them to Quraysh that the Muslims are regrouping they're actually coming to fight you so you're not going to go them and find them just you know like lying down or just giving up and you're going to finish them off they're getting ready to go again and they're actually coming out to fight you they're not even waiting in Medina or retreating to Medina or waiting in Uhud they're actually chasing you so Abu Sufyan thought better he said okay we have what we've done and we've restored our honor and our pride and we lost last time so let's not take it any further and then they continued back and that is what Allah Azza wa is referring to and that battle or skirmish or you know whatever expedition is called Hamra al-Asad so then he halted and some were too cowardly to fight, disputing this man, the dissipated man of the Prophet Sallallahu to stay in place on the top of the mountain to shoot. After he, whom Allah showed you what he loved, meaning victory, some of them said, We will go, our comrades, our comrades are victorious. So some did not disobey the order, but others left their position for security after Allah had made them think victory had been gained. Minkum man yuridu dunya wa minkum man yuridu al-akhirah. Among you are those who want this world and left their position for security, and among you are those who want the next world and stood firm until they were killed, such as Abdullah ibn Zubayr and his companions. Thumma sarafakum anhum liyabtaniyakum. Then. When the people's decree returned upon them, meaning the unbelievers, in order to test you, to see who would be sincere among you. But he has pardoned you for what you did. 
This verse 152 then speaks about the turning point of the battle. The Muslims at the beginning of Uhud were winning. And the Quraysh were fleeing from the battlefield and leaving behind their weapons and their armor and whatever else and they were running away. And so those companions on the battlefield were gathering up the war booty. The 70 archers on the Mount of Archers that the Prophet ﷺ had placed there under the leadership of Abdullah ibn Jubayr Those 70 from amongst them, a good number of them, the majority of them said to Abdullah ibn Jubayr, who was their leader, who was in charge of their little platoon, they said to him that the battle's over and our brothers are taking the war booty and they're taking that wealth and we want to share as well. So let us go down and take that wealth. The battle's over, the Quraysh are running, they're fleeing, it's over, it's done. Abdullah ibn Jubayr said, no, don't you remember what the Prophet ﷺ said to us? You don't leave until you hear from me, irrespective of what takes place on the battlefield. But the majority of them disagreed, they disobeyed, and they left their station and their position. Khalid ibn walid before he becomes a Muslim, is the leader of the cavalry of the Quraysh army. And he sees that the mountain top now only has a handful of companions, archers remaining. And the purpose of the archers is to protect the rear of the Muslim army. So that the cavalry or no one else can rout the Muslim army from, the, from behind. Khalid ibn Walid sees that most of those archers have left their station. He goes and he kills the few of them with his cavalry that remain, Abdullah ibn Jubayr radiallahu anhu being from amongst them. He then goes and he attacks the Muslims from behind them. He flanks them and he attacks them from behind. The Quraysh, the remainder of the Quraysh army sees what Khalid ibn Walid has managed to do. They regroup and now they attack the Muslim army from in front. And that is why the Muslims are trapped between the mountain of the archers and the mountain of Uhud on either side, left and right, and in front and behind them, the Quraysh army from either side. They're penned in, and that is what Allah Azza wa is referring to. They left because they saw a benefit that they wanted from the benefits of the dunya. And Allah Azza wa is saying that sometimes you have to sacrifice what you want from this dunya in order to attain what is greater in the sight of Allah Azza wa and that is the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remember, in this rambling of the soul, trying to flee from the enemy, refusing to turn back for anyone, and the Messenger of Allah was calling to you from the rear, saying, To me, says of Allah. Allah rewards you in requital for that with one distress and you defeat in return for another, who causes sorrow to the Messenger by disobeying his command so that so you would not feel grief for what escaped you of beauty and what assailed you of defeat. Allah is aware of everything you do. And this is when the Quraysh regroup and they attack the Muslim army now from in front and from behind. And the Muslims begin to scatter and a number of them start to flee up into the mountain of Uhud itself. They flee up into the mountain. And only the Prophet ﷺ, when he said a handful of companions remain firm in the middle of the battle. And the Prophet ﷺ is fighting and he's being surrounded by these companions because the Quraysh are trying to get to him to kill him ﷺ. And that is the day that Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas outdone himself and showed his true position when he was shooting arrows and the Prophet ﷺ would hand them to him and he would say 
shoot, O Sa'ad, may my parents be sacrificed for you. It is said that he was the only companion of the Prophet said that too. May my parents be sacrificed for you. And there were a few of them who remained steadfast with the Prophet until the rest of the army came back. Now. is referring to that the believers who grew drowsy and dropped their swords is the hadith that is mentioned in Sahih Bukhari of Abu Talha al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu he says that I was from amongst those companions of the day of Uhud that the Nu'as which is a type of serenity and sleep and drowsiness in order to keep the, the, the believers safe and, and in order to keep them firm and take fear away from their hearts they had a serenity and a drowsiness placed over them similar to what we mentioned yesterday about the story of David and Goliath that that chest that they had would give them serenity and tranquility Allah sent it upon them Abu Talha says in the hadith in Al-Bukhari I was there when that sleep came over us or that drowsiness came over us and our souls would drop and we would pick them up and they would drop again because that is the type of safety and uh, that Allah Azzawajal gave to them no. This is the statement of the hypocrites. They said that if those companions who had died, those 70 odd people, had they stayed with us, they would have been safe. They wouldn't have died had they 
retreated from the army, come back to Medina, they would still be alive. And Allah says, no. If Allah decreed for them death or you, it would come to you even whilst you're in your homes. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to them. And you see the marked difference of the approach of the hypocrites to the believers. And Allah will mention later on the position of the believers and we will mention the hadith of how the Prophet and his companions dealt with what was a blow to them on that day. As opposed to the hypocrites who all they think about is their lives obviously and their own property and wealth. Verse 
So this verse 159, Allah Azza wa is saying that the Prophet was gentle and kind towards the believers. So when at the beginning of the Battle of Uhud, they impressed upon the Prophet their view and what they would prefer to do, the Prophet is easy going with them. And he doesn't put down his foot and say, how dare you, I am the Prophet of Allah, I am the Messenger of Allah, I know best. The Prophet takes their advice and he listens to them. And after the Battle of Uhud, the Prophet doesn't blame those companions who left their post and say, it's because of you that my uncle Hamza died and 70 companions passed away, Musab ibn Umair and those other companions عنهم, that were martyred on that day. The Prophet is kind and gentle towards them and seeks forgiveness for them and sees the mistake for what it is, that it was a genuine mistake, a genuine error on their part. They never intended that the Muslims should be defeated or that their brothers should pass away. And Allah then says to them, الأمر, Continue to consult them as you did before Uhud. Showing that sometimes when you make consultation, the end result of that consultation is actually incorrect. Sometimes you make the wrong decision or what comes out of it is something which is, goes against what you actually wanted. But it doesn't take away the principle of, of, of what Allah has established. It doesn't take away the necessity to consult. The Prophet never said, I'm, not, I'm not, never going to ask anyone again or speak to anyone again or consult anyone again. That continues for the rest of his life, not only to establish it as a sunnah for us, as the author says, rahimahullah, but also to show you that those principles remain established even if sometimes the result may not be what is desired. And that is an important principle to mention. Because sometimes people pray istikhara and they're like, but that's not what I wanted, or it didn't work out, so therefore my istikhara, why should I make istikhara? The principle isn't taken away just because the result isn't something which you understand, or it's not in the way that you desired. And as we see from this surah, Allah decrees in what, what Allah decrees uh, that which there is ultimate good in, even if we do not understand and see the good immediately. Thank you. 
This is referring to people who in the battlefield take wealth that has not been distributed from the war booty. Essentially they steal it. They take it before the war booty is divided amongst the people. This narration is mentioned of Ibn Abbas عنه, and it is authentic in At-Tabarani that some of the people, uh, the hypocrites, they, they claim that the Prophet had stolen from the war booty. They said that he had taken it before dividing it. And Allah frees the Prophet from this accusation and shows that whoever would do so would come with a grave punishment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And similar to this is the hadith of the man who came to the Prophet and he said, O Messenger, O, o Muhammad, be just in the way that you distribute this wealth. Be just. And the Prophet said to him, Woe to you. Who will be just if I am unjust? And then when the companion said, I think it was Umar shall not take off his head, the Prophet said, No. But you will see from his descendants from his followers, those who, if you compare your salah to their salah and your Qur'an to their Qur'an and your fasting to their fasting, you will belittle your own acts of worship. They will read the Qur'an, but it will not pass beyond their throats. They will leave this religion as an arrow leaves its bow, showing that these will be the early remnants of what would later on become known as the Khawarij, those people who will rebel against the Muslims. And that is Obviously, therefore, the gravity of accusing the Prophet ﷺ or having doubt in what the Prophet ﷺ brings. Basically, that when we have calamities and challenges in our lives, it is as a result of our own deeds and our own actions. 
قُلْ هُوَ مِنْ عِنْدِ أَنفُسِكُمْ It has come from yourselves because you disagreed with the Prophet ﷺ, because you left your position in battle, because you didn't give him full obedience. All of those things together culminated in this. And it is the same for us when we sin and we disobey Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places upon us difficulty and harm. Allah says, ظَهَرُ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَدْرِ وَالْبَحْرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِ النَّاسِ There has become evil rampant upon land and sea because of what people earned by their own hands. يُذِيقَهُمْ بَعْضَ الَّذِي عَمِلُوا لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ So that they may taste some of that which they put forth and that they may return to their Lord. Verse, verse 168 Those who said to their brothers It's referring to the hypocrites They said to them that if only they had remained behind They wouldn't have died And Allah says though they are their brothers Those who said to their brothers And he's referring to the hypocrites How are they their brothers? As Al-Qurtubi and others mentioned Meaning their brothers in terms of their relatives Because they were relations amongst the Munafiqeen And the people of the Ansar And their brothers in terms of being their neighbors They all come from the same city As Allah Azza wa often says about the Prophets وَإِلَىٰ عَادٍ أَخَاهُمْ هُوْدًا وَإِلَىٰ ثَمُودًا أَخَاهُمْ صَالِحًا وَإِلَىٰ مَدْيَنًا أَخَاهُمْ شُعِيبًا To those nations we sent to them their brothers Hud and Salih and Shu'ib Because they are their brothers in terms of Coming from the same background The same area and so on this ayah was revealed at the marshes. وَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ قُتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتًا Do not suppose that those killed in the way of Allah mean to forsake the deen of death. Whereas قُتِلُوا killed and قُتِلُوا slaughtered. فَالْأَحْيَاءُ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ يُمْسَقُونَ No, indeed, they are alive and well provided for in the very presence of their Lord. The spirits are carried in the crops of green birds, flying in the garden wherever they wish, as the hadith states. As is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet that the martyrs of that day said 
if only our brothers who were left behind, meaning that were still alive, knew what Allah had prepared for us from the delights. From the delights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us. Bal ahya, they are living with their Lord who is providing for them. And from this also is a hadith in a Tirmidhi of Jabir radiallahu anhu, Jabir's father, Jabir uh, ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu, his father was one of those who was martyred on the day of Uhud. And the Prophet in this hadith comes to Jabir and Jabir is extremely upset, understandably, because his father has passed away. And the Prophet says to him, what is wrong, O Jabir? And Jabir says, O Messenger of Allah, my father passed away and he left behind young children and he left behind debt and he left behind dependents. And there is no one left. And Jabir himself is from the younger companions of the Prophet who was present on the day of Uhud. The Prophet said, if only you could see your father. Saying, uh, when your Lord asked him, your father, what is it that you want? And your father said, oh Allah, I wish that I could go back to the world and live and be killed again in your path and go back and be killed and, and so on. Go back and be martyred again and again. And the Prophet ﷺ said this to console Jabir radiallahu anhu, but it shows the position and the reward of that martyr radiallahu anhu. And Allah Azza wa in the hadith said, were it not that I had already prescribed that you cannot return to the world, you would have done so. Al-Imam ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala mentions a beautiful hadith in his commentary of this verse, verse 169. And it's a commentary which uh, isn't particularly related to the verse itself, but he mentions it, and I want to mention it because it is one of the benefits of reading the books of the scholars of the past. And one of the mistakes that sometimes we make when we think of these scholars is we think of them only specialists in one particular field. And Imam Suyuti, as we can see just from this tafsir, and we're only four Jews in, is not only an amazing scholar of tafsir, but the amount of points that he mentions in Qiraat, and Arabic language, and fiqh, and hadith, the narrations that he brings, shows you that he was a polymath. He was someone who had mastered multiple sciences of Islam, as his many works attest to. And it is the same of many other scholars. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, one of the beautiful things that you will find in his tafsir, is sometimes his commentary that he gives on hadith. Even though it's a book of tafsir, but he comments sometimes on a hadith and he gives you very beautiful narrations. In his commentary of this verse 169, he says, and there is a general, so this is specific, clearly what is mentioned here is for the martyrs, but it says that there is a more wider, general, glad tiding for the believers also, the believers who pass away. And he says, and there is a hadith that has been narrated by Isnadin, bi Isnadin, Sahihin, Azizin, Alim. It is narrated to us by a chain of narration that is authentic and it is amazing and it is great because it contains three of the four imams of the four madhabs. And that is one thing which the scholars of hadith call lata'iful isnad, from the beautiful nuances of the chain of narrators. Sometimes you have amazing people come together in a single chain of narration. He says this hadith is narrated by Imam Ahmad rahimahullah who took it from his teacher, Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, who took it from his teacher, Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala. So three of the four imams in this chain of narration. And Imam Malik narrated it from Imam al-Zuhri, one of the great scholars of the Tabi'een. Imam al-Zuhri, Muhammad ibn Muslim, ibn Ubaidillah ibn Abdullah ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, who narrates from Abdul Rahman ibn Ka'b ibn Malik, who narrates from his father, Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu an, that the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the soul of the believer will be in a bird that will fly around one of the trees of Jannah, and he will continue to do so until Allah returns it to its body on the day of resurrection. 
So even though this isn't a particular hadith that pertains to this, but it is one of those beautiful points of benefit and those gems that you take from reading these amazing works and their commentaries on them. This again is referring to that battle of Hamra al-Asad. Allah Azza wa says that when the Prophet Sallallahu and his companions went to that place and Abu Sufyan had fled because he'd heard of the coming army and they continued and they proceeded on their way to Mecca because of the hurry by which they left, they left behind a number of their possessions that the Muslims when they came they didn't find the Quraysh there anymore but they took what they had left behind. So Allah Azza wa says to them that he gave you also some of the good that you that you uh, you know that, that you benefited from. The verse again that still is continuing to speak about Hamra al-Asad and Hamra al-Asad they said some of them that it's towards Badr so this is the statement that people were saying to the companions and to the Muslims you should be fearful because the Quraysh are coming back again they're not done with you they're coming back for round two and the Prophet وسلم, and the believers only increased in faith and they said Ibn Abbas in the hadith in al-Bukhari he said that this is what the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, said when he was thrown into the fire. He said, sufficient is Allah for me and what a blessed protector. And the Prophet said, as this verse says, when the people said that they have gathered against you again to fight you, this is what he and the believers said. Um, 
Verse 179, Allah says, Allah But Allah chooses from His messengers whomever He wills. So, Suyuti says, to acquaint with His unseen. More accurate is to say, to be acquainted with some of His unseen. Allah doesn't give the prophets access to all of the ghayb, the unseen. He gives them access to whatever so He wills, some of the unseen. Whomsoever He chooses, and then He gives him from the unseen that He chooses to give to them. No. 
those who are sitting with the bounty of Allah, those who are sitting with the bounty of Allah has given them by being miserly about giving the zakat, be honest, should not support that 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 their miserliness is better for them. No, indeed, it their miserliness is worse for them. What they will still do is use the zakat, be on their property, will be hung around their necks on the day of rising, as a snake biting them, as we find in the hadith. Allah is the inheritor of the heavens and the earth when the world ends. Allah and Allah is aware of everything you do. Whether ta'maluna, what you do, and ya'maluna, what they do, and will repay you for that. The hadith that is referring to of the snake biting them is the hadith in Al-Bukhari of Abu Hurairah radiallahu Whoever Allah Azza wa Jal has given wealth to them and they don't pay the zakat on their wealth, on Yawm Al-Qiyamah it will take the form of a snake and it will bite them continuously and it will say, Ana maluk, ana kanzuk, I am your wealth, I am your treasure that you were hoarding. Allah has heard the words of those who say Allah is poor and we are rich. The Ulfu Jews who said this when the ayah, who will lend Allah a good loan, was revealed. They said, if you were rich, you would not ask for a loan. The next We will write down whether the next Ulfu, we will write and say, it will be written, meaning command it to be written, what they said in the books of their actions, so that they can be repaid for it and the killing of the prophets without any reward. And we will say, taste the punishment of the burning by entering it. Allah will speak to them in the next world on the tongues of the angels. This is the verse, the verse that they are referring to here. Is that the Jews, when Allah said, Who will give to Allah a good loan? They said, Your God is, must be poor then. If he needs you to borrow him money and give you a loan, he must be a poor God. And that is their statement here that Allah is. Poor and we are rich. That is what they are referring to now.
This verse is referring to the, the Arabs or to some of their munafiqeen or to some of the uh, Jews and Christians. Some narrations say that it's referring to Ka'b ibn Ashraf and others because they used to come and curse the Muslims openly and they would ridicule them and belittle them. And in the, um, the tafsir of Ibn Abi Hatim, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions a narration that it was referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu when he passed by one of the disbelievers and he was saying the verse that we already covered 181 that Allah is poor and we are rich he heard someone say this and so he struck him because of the anger that he felt and so Allah Azza wa revealed this first thing that you will hear from them these words that will belittle you that will attack you your religion your Lord and your Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Remember, when Allah made a covenant with those giving the book, referring to the covenant with the Jews in Torah, He must make it, meaning the book, clear to people and not conceal it, meaning the book. But they toss it, meaning the covenant, in disdain behind their backs and do not act by it and accept of the advice of this world. By signing the condition of leadership and knowledge, they conceal the truth, fearing to miss out on this world. What an evil sale they make. This is a poor transaction. Do not suppose, that is, do not suppose, they should not suppose, in two places, that those who exalt in what they have done, misguiding others, are not to be praised for what they have not done, in holding to the truth, when they are in fact misguided. فَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّهُمْ بِمَفَادَةٍ مِّنَ 
This is mentioned in the hadith in Al-Bukhari al-Muslim Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu concerning the munafiqeen that when the Prophet ﷺ would go out to war and to battle they would remain behind and then when the Prophet ﷺ returned they would, uh, they would give their excuses as to why they were unable to participate and if the Muslims were defeated or they didn't win in that battle they would say well you know we did the right thing and we stayed back and so we didn't lose and we weren't harmed and if they won they would try to sh- take a share of that glory and they would like to be praised for that which they did not do. This verse onwards now from 190 to the end of the surah, which is the final passage of Surah Ali Imran, is mentioned in a number of hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. From them is the hadith in Al-Bukhari of Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنهما, when he spent the night in the house of his aunt Maymuna, who is the aunt of Ibn Abbas and one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. And he wanted to spend the night in the house in the house of the Prophet ﷺ and his aunt Maymuna radiallahu anha because he wanted to witness the worship of the Prophet ﷺ during the night. He says that we slept that night and when the Prophet ﷺ towards half the night slightly before or maybe slightly after he woke up and the Prophet ﷺ rubbed his face meaning he rubbed the sleep from his eyes and then he recited this passage of Surah Ali Imran. He recited this passage and then he got up and then he made wudu and then he proceeded to pray his salatul layl which shows you that this was something therefore which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would do and in another hadith the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha by Ibn Majah and others she says that the Prophet sallallahu one night prayed and he told me not to disturb him and he prayed so much and he cried so much in his salah that his beard became wet with his tears and he continued to pray and cry and he continued to do so in ruku' and in sujood until the ground became wet with his tears. And he continued that way the whole night until it was the time for Fajr. And Bilal radiallahu anh came in and he saw the state of the Prophet with his tears and his crying and the ground wet and moist around him. So he said, O Messenger of Allah, do you do this when Allah has forgiven you for your sins past and present and future? The Prophet said, Afala akunu abdan shakura. Should I not be a grateful slave? Indeed, there have been verses that have been revealed upon me this night. Woe to those who recite them and they do not contemplate over them. And then the Prophet proceeded to recite these verses. Indeed, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, the alternation of the day and the night are signs for those people of understanding, those who remember Allah as they stand and as they sit on their side. And they think about the creation of the heavens and the earth and they say, O oh, our Lord, you do not create this in jest or in futility. Glory be to you, so save us from the punishment of the fire.
The wrongdoers will have no helpers. Allah could have said, They have no helpers. But Allah adds the word Why? Because it is the reason for which they will suffer disgrace and have no helpers. And so Allah affirms not only that they will have punishment, but Allah affirms the reason for which they deserve that punishment, and that is because of their disbelief and their wrongdoing. Those who emigrated from Mecca to 
Berlin and spoke on believers and on those. I will erase their bad action from them by calling them in my forgiveness and admit them into God's new rivers flowing under them as a reward from Allah. The best of all rewards and repentance includes Allah. This notion of Umm Salama radiallahu anha is collected by Al Hakim in his Mustadrak. This ayah was set down when a Muslim said, We see that the enemies of Allah are having a good time whereas we are in great difficulty. They loot back the land, trading and making money. said that this verse was revealed as it's kept in the Nasai when the Najashi, the Abyssinian leader, passed away and the Prophet ﷺ prayed over his janazah. And the verse in Surah Al-Qasas, because he's saying a Suthi in his commentary that they get rewarded twice over, Allah says, Those are the ones who will receive double their reward because of what they were patient upon. And in the other hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, that from those people who will be given the greatest of those rewards are those who believed in the Prophet who came before me and then they believed in me. So we now come on to the fourth surah of the Qur'an which is Surah An-Nisa which is also from the longer surahs of the Qur'an and it is a surah which speaks about many of the etiquettes and the principles and the rules that we need in our society and within our communities and in our families 
in order for us to be able to live and cohabit together in a way that is pleasing to Allah and in a way that is fruitful. And that's why this is a surah that will often speak about verses of divorce and verses of marriage and verses of inheritance and so on. It contains many of the ahkam and many of the rulings of Islam. This surah is Medina, surah 176 verses revealed after surah Al-Muntahina. So it has 176 verses in our mushaf and it is a Medina surah. It is said except for a couple of verses. And if the scholars of tafsir say that a surah is Makki or Madani except for a couple of verses, it doesn't detract from that surah being Makki or Madani. It's still a Makki and Madani surah. But maybe a verse here or there may have been revealed before or after the hijrah. But it is a Madani surah and one of the reasons or the proofs for that is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha in Sahih al-Bukhari in which she said that Surah Al-Nisa was not revealed until I was living with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, meaning as his wife and she only lived and moved in with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam after the hijrah in Medina. And your family ties, your kinship. What is it referring to? Some of the scholars of tafsir said that Allah Azza wa is telling us to fear Him with regards to our family ties. So fear Allah, the one by whom you take an oath, and fear Him with regards to your family ties, meaning don't cut off your family ties. Another opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir is what Ta'ala mentions is that we should take an oath by Allah Azza wa Jal. More so than we take an oath by our family members because the Arabs of that time used to take oaths by their family members. They used to take an oath by their lineage, which obviously is not allowed for us to do. But it's something which, uh, which the Arabs used to do. Another scholar said, no, what it means that you ask by your family members is that you ask. These are the people that you are most likely to ask for help after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So after Allah Azza wa Jal and you take an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you ask your family members for their help. Following ayah was revealed that an orphan who asked for his property from his guardian refused to give it to him. وَآتُوا الْيَتَامَا أَمْوَالَهُمْ وَلَا تَتَبَدَّلُ الْخَبِيثَ بِالْطَيِّذَ Give orphans, meaning young children with no father, their property when they come of age, and do not substitute bad, meaning unlawful things for good, meaning lawful. As good things you do by taking good property and replacing it with something inferior. وَلَا تَأْكُلُوا أَمْوَالَهُمْ إِلَىٰ أَمْوَالِكُمْ Do not assimilate their property into your own by consuming it. إِنَّهُ كَانَ حُوبًا كَبِيرًا To do that is a serious crime, an immense sin. If this was revealed, people start taking on the guardianship of orphans. This is mentioned in the hadith in Bukhari in 
the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha that if a person had a, a an orphan girl in the, in the time of the Arabs, if a person had an orphan girl under their custodianship, what they would do is that they would keep that girl from getting married from anyone else in order to keep the wealth that she owns under their own possession so that that wealth wouldn't be given to other people. So they would try to, they would harm the orphan girl by not allowing her to get married in order to keep that wealth as their own. That is what Allah Azza wa is referring to. And then this one, some of them had eight or ten wives and so on. This is the commentary of the next verse. Some of them had eight or ten wives and were not fair between them until the following ayah was revealed. وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تُبْسِقُوا فَلْيَدَّعْنَا فَلْيُنْفِقُوا مَا قَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَثْنَى وَثُلَاثَ وَرُبَاعَ If you are afraid not to hear injustice towards orphans and seek not to be restricted in respect of their affairs and also fear that you will not be fair between your wives then marry other permissible women two, three or four do not marry more than four فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ But if you are afraid of not treating them equally in respect of maintenance and division, then marry only one, or confine yourself to those who own their slaves who do not have the rights that wives have. ذَلِكَ أَدَنَا أَلَّا تَعْمُلُوا That means marrying no more than four or marrying just one makes it more likely that you will not be unfair. This, uh, the cause of this, the revelation of this hadith, which is mentioned, some of them had eight or ten wives, is authentically reported in, in Sunan Ibn Majah and so on, that some of the, the, the people who accepted Islam before Islam, they had many wives, eight or ten, and so the Prophet Sallallahu would tell them to choose four or keep four and divorce the rest. position of many scholars, that if a child doesn't show the signs of puberty, other signs of puberty, then at the age of 15, they have reached puberty. This is the position of a Shafi, as he mentions, and Imam Ahmad, and Abu Yusuf, and Muhammad bin Hassan, of the Hanafi Madhab, and other scholars. (laughs) 
ولا تأكلوها So, as we said, this is a surah that speaks about etiquettes and principles of how to behave in society. And Allah Azza wa has mentioned some issues regarding marriage. And now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the rights of orphans. Because especially in the time of the Prophet and even in our time, it is often the rights of women and often the rights of orphans. And often the rights of these people that are usurped. And they are the ones who are most oppressed. Allah Azza wa is saying in this verse, verse number 6 of Surah An-Nisa, that if you have orphans under your guardianship and they have wealth that they inherited from their parents when they passed away, and those orphans are young, they're children, they don't understand and they don't have the ability to manage their financial affairs, you should manage their financial affairs for them by investing that wealth, by making sure that it doesn't just depreciate, for example, if it's something that may depreciate. And by doing so, you should be fair and you should be good and you shouldn't use that wealth extravagantly for yourself, taking away the rights that belong to them. If someone has the ability to do that and they're independent financially themselves, then they don't take anything from that wealth, but they do this for the sake of Allah Azza wa and for the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they're poor, then they take from that wealth what they need in order to continue to look after their interests. Yeah. This ayah will reveal to refute the custom of great sand times whereby women and children do not inherit. Because one of the most common things amongst also again the Arabs and even in our time is that women did not inherit. But if they inherited, they did not inherit their full share. And they would often be deprived as well as young children who are yet to each, reach the age of puberty. Often they wouldn't be included in the division of inheritance. Sorry, is that the door open? So this verse, verse number 8 of Surah An-Nisa, if at the time of distributing inheritance, poor people come, you should give them a share of that. This was 
the general principle at the beginning of Islam, it is abrogated by verse number 11 as we will see when Allah Azza wa sets out the shares of people for them in particular shares and sets. He gives people the share that is allotted to them. Just as at the beginning of Islam after the Hijrah, the Prophet made a pact of brotherhood between the people of the Ansar and the people of the Muhajirin. And part of the terms of that brotherhood was that they would inherit from one another. If one passed away, they would inherit from the other. That too was also abrogated later on in the Quran. So, it is the position of many of the scholars like Sa'id ibn Musayyib ibn Iqrim and others that this is a, a verse that is abrogated. And some of the scholars said, no, it's not abrogated. Amongst them is Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum as a Suyuti rahimahullah mentions. And he said what it means is if some poor people come and they happen to arrive, then it is good to give them some charity from that wealth that you have. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. <laughs> As is mentioned the hadith of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu in Bukhari and Muslim that the Prophet came to visit him on the day of the farewell hajj I think or the conquest of Mecca, one of the two and the Prophet found that he was extremely ill and the Prophet when he visited Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu Sa'ad said to him, O Messenger of Allah you see the situation that I'm in meaning that I'm seriously ill and I fear for myself. So if I die, no one will inherit from me except my daughter. That's the only person that remains from my family. She will receive it all. And I have much wealth. So allow me to give two-thirds of it in charity. The Prophet ﷺ said no. He said half. He said no. Then the Prophet ﷺ said give a third and a third is more than enough. It is better for you to leave your dependents wealthy than you leave them poor having to rely and ask from others. And that is what Asyuti rahimahullah is mentioning at the end of his commentary of that verse. So this is the verse, verse number 11 of Surah Tunisa that abrogates many of those earlier rulings of inheritance that you can just give all of your wealth away or that the other people or the poor people inherit of, uh, in their opinion of those scholars who say that it's abrogated. This is the verse and the verses that come after it that abrogate those general rulings of inheritance that give us the ability to do with that estate as we please. That was abrogated so that now Allah Azza wa has given us fixed shares. I can't choose what I give to my children. 
my wife, my husband, my parents, my siblings, and depending on who is alive and who isn't, some of them will be prevented from receiving a share, and some of them will not. And some of them will receive more, and some of them will receive less. Allah Azzawajal placed all of this out in extreme detail in the Qur'an. And most of the rulings of inheritance in our Sharia are taken from the Qur'an, as opposed to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the sunnah expands upon what Allah mentions in the Qur'an concerning these rulings. Because it was such a major issue of that time of a position of people not knowing. And it's mentioned the hadith of Jabir when he was ill. And Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ came to visit him. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, you see that I am seriously ill. What do I do with my wealth? Who do I give it to? How do I distribute it? Can I give it all away? And Allah Azza wa it is said, then reveal these verses to show to people that this is how you distribute your wealth. And in the, the hadith of the daughters of Sa'd ibn Rabi' radiallahu anhu, was one of the companions that were martyred. He left behind a wife and two young daughters. And so Sa'd, his male relatives, his brothers and so on, as was the practice and the custom of that time, they took his wealth. They left back nothing for his wife, nothing for his young daughters. So they came complaining to the Prophet ﷺ, his wife, his widow, dragging her two children, saying, O Messenger of Allah, they took the wealth of Sa'ad, and there is nothing left for me, and nothing left for my daughters. What do we do? So Allah revealed these verses concerning inheritance. Allah 
And this verse shows the importance of dealing with our issues of inheritance and our wills. In Islam, family members have an allotted share of your inheritance and you are allowed to give a third of your estate away in charity to those people who don't inherit from you from those shares. And to put that down in our time into a legal document, into writing, is something which only isn't recommended or part of highly recommended and stressed in the sunnah as the Prophet said whoever has something to bequeath shouldn't allow more than two nights to pass until they write it down not only is it highly stressed in our religion but it's something which needs to be done in order to solve many of the issues of dispute and inheritance that take place after a person passes away and it's when we're negligent on that regard and when we pass away that we leave our family members in that confusion and with those problems that lead often to families splitting up and people becoming distant from one another because we didn't do our due diligence and duty in that regard. And also it's important to mention that Allah mentions that the male has doubled the share of the female. That is not in every instance. It is only in some instances. And one of the misconceptions of uh, inheritance is that a man always receives more than a woman and that's not always true sometimes and oftentimes women can receive more and men who are closely related to the deceased can be left with nothing and that's because women's shares are always fixed whereas men's shares can sometimes be fixed and can sometimes be fluctuating and if they are fluctuating then if there is nothing left they receive nothing and that is an important point to mention Allah says أَبَاءُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاءُكُمْ your fathers and your, your parents and your children, you don't know which are more beneficial than you because in inheritance, the spouse that is living, the parents, direct parents and children will always inherit. They will always inherit. But everyone else, uncles, siblings, nephews, nieces, grandchildren, grandparents, only inherit if some of those people are not there. But these people, the spouse, the parents, the children, will always inherit. And Allah knows best. Sorry, 
after any requests we make or any debts, making sure that no one's, meaning none of the heirs' rights are prejudiced by a request of more than a third. This means instruction from Allah, which He commands you. Allah is all-knowing of how to manage the creation and shares of inheritance, all forbearing by deferring punishment upon those who oppose it. The Sunnah specifies that inheritance is withheld in the event of homicide, difference of religion, or slavery. So in the previous verse, verse 11, we have the inheritance of parents and children and so on. In this verse, verse 12, it is the inheritance of spouses. And clearly there is much more detail to this in terms of conditions and, and so on. And that is the place of the books of fiqh. These documents mentioned about all kinds of inheritance are Allah's things. The laws of Allah, He says, He binds all slaves so that they should act by them and not overstep them. As for him who obeys Allah and his messenger in his decrees, Allah will admit him, whereas Yudhikilhu, he will admit him, and Nuthikilhu, we will admit him, into gardens with rivers flowing under them, remaining in them time to time to see forever. That is a great victory. As for him who disobeys Allah and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and oversteps his limits, he will admit, again read as, Yudhikhilhu, he will admit him, and Nuthikhilhu, we will admit him, into a fire, to remain in eternity forever. He will have humiliating punishment. وَالَّاتِي يَأْتِينَ الْفَاحِشَةَ مِنْ نِزَائِكُمْ فَاسْتَشْهِدُوا عَلَيْهِنَّ أَرْبَعَةً مِنْكُمْ If any of your women who make fornication, four of you, meaning Muslim men, must be witnesses against them that they have committed it. فَإِنْ شَهِدُوا فَأَمْسِكُمُنَّ فِي الْبُيُوتِ حَتَّى يَتَوَفَّاهُنَّ الْمَوْتُ أَوْ يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ لَهُنَّ سَبِيلًا They bear witness. Stay them in their homes and keep them from socializing with people and until death releases them when the angels take their souls. Or Allah ordains another procedure for their case, some other way to emerge from their imprisonment. The Muslims will command you to do that at the end of Islam, and then Allah will ordain by means of 100 battles for virgins to fornicate and designing them for a year, and for married women to prescribe stoning. Hadith clarified the penalty when the Prophet said, Take it from me. Allah has ordained another procedure for them. So this was at the beginning of Islam that if someone committed adultery they would be kept at home they would be imprisoned until either death came to them or as Allah says O sabila, Allah makes for them another path and then this was abrogated with the normal rulings of fornication and adultery and that is why in the hadith of Sahih Muslim the Prophet said Take it from me, take it from me. Allah has made for them another way out. Meaning that Allah has abrogated this ruling and placed something else in its place. Most 
Shaykh's punishment on occasion. That also applies to Salihin according to Ash-Shafi'i. But one who is guilty of it is not to be stoned in his youth, even if he has been married. He is to be plucked and exiled. The means here is more likely to be Salihin because of the grammatical use of his dual. But fornication is not excluded. They are light and calm, and since the need for repentance have done away. Many particular are mentioned since of imprisonment for women was mentioned in the previous ayah. إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْلَمُونَ السُّوءَ بِجَهَالَةِ Allah has prescribed to himself that by his bounty, he only accepts the repentance of those who do evil, meaning an act of disobedience, in ignorance, when they, when they did not know that what they were doing was disobedience. ثُمَّ يَتُوبُونَ مِنْ قَلِيلٍ And then quickly repent of doing it before they die. فَأُولَٰئِكَ يَتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا Allah turns towards such people and accepts their repentance. Allah is all-knowing of His creation, all-wise in what He does to them. And that is a general principle in the Qur'an that you will find that when Allah mentions punishments and penalties, very soon after Allah will always mention verses of tawbah, showing that if a person, despite committing those major sins and those major issues, if they were to turn back to Allah and make tawbah and ask Allah for forgiveness, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who accepts repentance and forgives and shows mercy. And that is from the mercy of Allah but from the eloquence and the beauty of the Qur'an, that really will you come across a verse like this in which there is a major punishment that is mentioned from the penal code, except that Allah very soon after will speak about it in terms of tawbah for those who wish to turn back to Allah. وَلَيْسَتِ التَّوْبَةُ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السَّيِّئَاتِ حَتَّى إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَهُمُ الْمَوْتُ قَالَ إِنِّي تُبْتُ الْآنَ وَلِلَّذِينَ يَمُوتُونَ وَهُمْ كُفَّارُ There is no repentance for people who persist in doing evil, meaning wrong actions, until death appears to them and they are on the point of death, and who then say, when they see that they are dying, now I repent. This is of no use and is not accepted, nor for people who die as unbelievers and who repent in the next world when they see the punishment. That would certainly not be accepted from them. We have prepared for them a painful punishment. We believe it is not lawful for you to inherit women by force, whether as Kalhan and Kohan, if the women concerned object to it. In time of Jahiliya, people inherited their relatives' wives. They wished, they married them without dowry, without dowry, or married them and took their dowry and let them ransom themselves with what they inherited, or they would inherit from them when they died. And this is mentioned in the hadith of Ibn Abbas, or the narration of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu in Sahih al-Bukhari, that it was common in the time of the Arabs, that if a person's wife, or if uh, a wife, her husband passed away, then the family of the man, of the husband, she wouldn't go back to her own family. They would, the, the husband's family would be the ones to decide what they do. If one of them wanted to marry her, they would marry her. And if one of them wanted to marry her off to someone else, they would have that ability or that choice to do so. Not her own parents or her own family. And if they wanted to leave her, they don't marry her, nor can anyone else marry her, they would do that as well. And Allah Azza wa Jal forbade this and said, don't do this. And one of the reasons they would do this is if she inherited, for example, a great amount of wealth from her husband that passed away, she had it, or there was some business that she was also a part of, they would benefit from that uh, by keeping her under their guardianship. They 
harshly by preventing such women from marrying others, by keeping hold of them, or having any desire to cause harm to them, so that you can make up with part of what you have given them by taking their dower, unless they commit an act of flagrant, whether it's mubayyina and mubayyana indecency, unless they clearly commit adultery or disobey you in order to force them to ransom themselves with a forced divorce. Live together with them correctly and plenteously, with good works and giving them their maintenance and a place to live. If you dislike them, be patient. It may well be that you dislike something when Allah has placed a lot of good in it. Perhaps it is through them that you will have the blessing of a righteous child. And in this verse then, is the forbidden, the prohibition of harming a wife, a husband harming his wife with the intention of him, of her forcing a divorce, of her seeking a separation because if he divorces her, he takes nothing of the dowry. But if he harms her and she's the one who seeks separation, he is entitled to receive his dowry back. The Prophet Allah forbids this. Don't keep your wives and harm them in order that you wish to divorce them, but you want to force them to be the ones to initiate that divorce so that you can take that wealth back from them. If you desire to exchange one wife for another, meaning through divorce, and have given your original wife a larger man, meaning dowry, do not take any of it. Would you take it by means of slander, meaning justice, and downright crime, clear and evident wrongdoing? Questioning the following ayah is by way of rebuke and objection. Which is the commentary of the next verse. The question in the following ayah is by way of rebuke and objection. Now. Verse 21. وَكَيْفَ تَأْخُذُونَهُ وَقَدْ أَفْضَى بَعْضُكُمْ إِلَىٰ بَعْضٍ How could you take it in any way when you have been intimate with each other, meaning through sexual intercourse, which obliges payment of the dowry? وَأَخَذْنَ مِنْكُمْ مِيثَاقًا وَلِيْضًا And we have made a binding contract with you. The contract here refers to what Allah has commanded about keeping it correctly or letting him go with kindness. Which is also one of the major mistakes still committed by Muslims in terms of marriage, that they don't give their diaries to their wives or they hold it back or they say that it's something which we can both share or something in that regard. It is their right and it is something which they own and they possess and it belongs to them. Do not marry any women your fathers have already married except what took place in the past which is overlooked. That marrying them is an indecent act, a loathsome thing, and an evil way, which incurs Allah's anger and his evil behavior. And Imam al mentions from Ibn Abbas that it was a common practice amongst the Arabs to marry their stepmothers. Say if the father had not their own mother, but their stepmother, if he had a wife and then he passed away, the son would marry his stepmother. It was common until Allah Azza wa made it haram in our religion. Unlawful for you to marry up your mothers and grandmothers on either side, your daughters and granddaughters and your sisters through either parent. The maternal aunts, the sisters of your mothers and grandmothers, and to 
fellow aunts, the sisters of your fathers and grandfathers, your brothers, daughters, and your sisters' daughters, including their children. The first thing that was her sexual abuse, referring to touching before the child was two years old, at least five times, as the hadith states. The foster sisters by sucking, and the sunnah as your daughters and aunts and nieces, according to hadith. Sucking makes unlawful, but marriage makes unlawful, taken by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. Your wives and mothers, your stepdaughters. Your wives, mothers, meaning your mother-in-law. Your stepdaughters, daughters of your wife, by your previous husband, who are under your protection and whom you are bringing up. The daughters of your wives you have had sexual relations with. So if you have not had sexual relations with them, there is nothing blameworthy to you in it then in marrying their daughters if you have divorced them. The wives of your sons whom you have fathered, not those you have adopted and cared for whose ex-wives you can marry. And marrying two sisters at the same time, whether they are by blood or nursing. And the Sunnah adds to this, marrying a woman and her aunt, although it is permitted to marry one, on divorcing the other, and to own two sisters as slaves, provided you only have relations with one. Except for what took place in the past, meaning before Islam, and incur no sin in respect of that. Allah is ever forgiving of what took place before this prohibition, most merciful to you in that respect. So this is a verse that speaks about the female relatives that it is haram for us to marry. And there's a few points that I, I think it's important to clarify here. The first of them is what he says, referring to suckling before the child is two years old at least five times. The hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, the Prophet said, That which is haram for you because of your blood relations is also haram because of suckling. Suckling is when you have the same mother that suckles two babies, as was the custom, especially in the time of the Prophet and even today in many countries. The Prophet when he was young, as we know, he was given to Halima, who was his wet nurse, his, his mother that suckled him. He went into the desert and lived with her. The other children that were suckled by her, also Halima, were in, in her place, are all related to the Prophet by suckling, meaning that they are like his brothers and sisters. He cannot get married to them. They don't inherit from him, but he cannot marry them, and they are his maharim. They are people that he is allowed to see the female relatives, and likewise for the sisters or the females to see their male relatives. That ruling, according to the majority of the scholars, is for a child under the age of two years old. So under the age of two, and this is what he mentions, the position of Imam al-Shafi'i, that if there are five uh, sucklings or five times that child sucks from that mother, then that ruling becomes part of the religion. Another scholar said, no, it is three, and there is a difference of opinion, but this is the statement of Imam, or the position of Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, as the author, as we said, is a Shafi'i scholar. Allah Azza wa says also, in this verse, and your stepdaughters, or your stepdaughters, the daughters of your wives by a previous husband who are under your protection. And the scholars take from that, this verse, the importance of looking after your stepchildren. And this is a verse that Allah Azza wa Jal says to the husband, if he takes on those children, that it is his duty to look after them because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encourages them to do that as well. 
the daughters of your wives you have had sexual relations with, meaning the wives that you have had sexual relations with, then the daughters become forbidden for you to marry. If a person gets married to a woman, the mother-in-law automatically becomes haram, even if the marriage isn't consummated. The mother-in-law is not allowed for that man to marry, even if they get divorced, that mother-in-law remains someone who is forbidden for you to marry. But when it comes to a stepdaughter, that, har- that hurma or that tahrim, that prohibition only comes in if the marriage is consummated. And some of the scholars said, because a mother is more likely to be forgiving for her daughter, but the daughter is more likely to be jealous of her mother. Parents are nicer to their children, as we know that often children are to their parents. إِلَّا مَا قَدْ سَلَفْ Allah says at the end, except for what took place in the past, meaning that there is no sin on that. Not that the ruling continues. Meaning that if someone had married one of those female relatives before Islam, they will revert and they married one of those people for the sake of argument or in the time of the Prophet ﷺ before the ruling was revealed. There is no sin upon them. However, the ruling doesn't stay. Meaning that they must divorce those people. They must separate from them. So when Allah says there is no problem with that and Allah just said it in the same one in the verse before in verse number 22 about the fathers. It is an evil thing to do or accept that which took place in the past which is overlooked. Meaning the sin is overlooked. But the ruling still remains that they must be separated from them. And this verse is a continuation of the previous verse, even though we've started the next juz now, juz 5, verse 24, the and meaning just as it is haram for you to marry all of those women in verse 23, in verse 24, it is also haram for you to marry these people as well. And from the sciences of Qur'an is the science of stopping and starting, al-waqfu wal-ibtida, to know when to start and when to stop so that the meaning remains intact. And this is a good example of that because many people finish their recitation at the end of the fourth juz, but the meaning then becomes broken because if you start it again and you say, and also, and also what? Because you have broken off the meaning. Now, you may have relations with them if they have husbands in the whole divorce after istighfar, the waiting period to ascertain whether they are pregnant. Kitab Allahi alaykum. This is what Allah has prescribed for you. Wa uhillakum ma wara dalikum an tabtahu bi amwalikum muqsiin ghayra musafifin. Apart from that, He has made all other women lawful for you, provided you seek them with your wealth. Of outward affirmation. 
inward conviction direct to Allah who alone knows what they are. This is to give consolation for having married slave girls. You are all the same in that respect, namely with respect to the deen. You are equal in the deen, so do not be too proud to marry them. Marry them with their own submission and give them their dowries directly and courteously, without delay or decrease, as chaste married women, not in open fornication or taking them as secret lovers in fornication. When they are married, where there's Uhsinna and Ahsanna, if they commit fornication, they should receive half the punishment of free women. Slaves, males and females, receive half the punishment, so they receive 50 lashes and are exiled for six months. They are not to be stoned. This, meaning marrying slave girls when lacking wealth, is for those of you who are afraid of committing fornication. Amen. The root, the root, the root of amen means hardship, and fornication is so-called that because it is the reason for the hajj and punishment in the next world. <coughs> the words, those of you, exclude those free men who do not fear fornication, and so it is not also for those who do not fear committing it to marry slaves, or for those with enough wealth to marry a free woman, a woman. That is the position of the shepherd. Believing slave girls excludes disbelieving women, whom it is not lawful to marry even if one lacks the financial means to marry and fears fornication. But being patient is better for you than marrying slave girls so that your child is not born as a slave. Allah is ever forgiving, most merciful in granting you scope in that. This verse, verse number 25 of Surah An-Nisa, uh, in, in the translation, he says, in the fifth line, this is to give consolation for having to marry slave girls. What he actually says, Rahimullah Ta'ala, is that sometimes marrying a slave girl may be better for a person in that situation than marrying a free woman. That slave girl may be more pious, more religious, more fearing of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So he doesn't say to give consolation, he says actually it may be better for for some people in that situation. What Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring to in this verse, and this is the position of a Shafi that he mentions at the bottom of page 185, that it is only allowed for a free man to marry a slave girl, a Muslim, a believing slave girl, on two conditions. Number one, that he cannot marry a free Muslim woman, either for whatever reason. He cannot marry a free Muslim woman. And number two, that he fears for himself that if he doesn't get married, he will fall into haram. And that is the position of Al-Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad, and Imam Malik, rahimahumullah, they say these are the two conditions. If these two conditions are not fulfilled, it is not allowed to marry the slave girl. Why? Because by marrying the slave girl, the child of the slave girl becomes slaves as well. And because of that harm, in that, Islam does not like slavery. But rather, Islam tries to free people from that bondage and that slavery. And so that's why it's something which they said is conditional upon these two conditions being met. And this is an opposition to the Hanafi Madhab, the Hanafi scholars, rahimahumullah, don't place those conditions, and Allah knows best. Allah desires to make things mean to those of your deen and what is in your best interest clear to you, and to guide you with the practices of those prophets before you, to make things lawful and unlawful, and so that you follow them as well, and to turn towards you, to bring you back from disobedience to obedience. 
والله عليم حكيم الله يقول نوين حكيم والله يسمعك ما تقول والله يريد أن يتوب عليكم ويريد الذين ويريد الذين يتبعون الشهوات أن تميلوا ميلا عظيما الله بدايس شن قوتي فدوس بسيرة لو أحس among the Jewish Christians Magians 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 or fornicators desire to make you deviate completely and turn from the truth and commit what is forbidden to you so that you will be the same as them The Magians are the Majus the fire worshippers uh, The translators have have translated Yatubu alaykum Allahu yuridu Yatubu alaykum as turning towards Allah and Yatubu alaykum means that Allah accepts your repentance in both verses 26 and 27 and to turn towards you, no, Allah desires to accept your repentance. Allah looks for you to repent to Him, so that Allah Azza wa can accept your repentance. And no doubt, Tawbah requires you to turn to Allah, and to invoke Allah, and to ask of Allah. But repentance is a better translation in my humble view. Allah desires to make things lighter for you. He desires to lighten the degrees of the Sharia for you. Man was created too weak to refrain from women for indulgence and low appetites. So Allah says in verse 28 that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made your religion easy for you. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us these rulings and these concessions within those rulings in our religion. Because Allah knows our nature and Allah knows our weakness. And Allah knows when He created us that He created us with that weakness. But that is from the ways that we, in which we increase our, our station in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we turn to Allah in tawbah, when we strive, when we sacrifice, when we try our utmost despite the temptations of the dunya and the whisperings of shaitan. And with that inshallah ta'ala, we will come to a conclusion here. We'll stop here, bithnillah ta'ala for today. Barakallahu feekum wa sallam abidu Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa akhiru da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alameen. This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org.